talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is manning the board. Willer Skin is in the cloud. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Elon Musk has bought Twitter. Is there anyone under the age of 30 who gives a rat's rear end? Here's Scott hey, 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 hey. Watch your mouth there. Watch that. But I see your point. Hold on, I'm coming. Hold on, I'm coming. That's what it's been like for the last two and a half years, and some people say even before that. Hold on, I'm coming. Don't you worry. I'm going to rescue you. I've got your back. Hang on. I'm coming. Sirens and lights are blazing. It seems like we're in need of perpetual rescue. Is it me? Or are we in need of constant perpetual rescue? We need rescued from this. We need rescued from that. We need rescued from blah, 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 blah. And now we need rescued from Elon Musk. A man at one time we used to praise for bringing back electric vehicles and building rockets. But now he's the devil. He's the devil. And we'll talk about that in a sec. Uh, it is 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. Great to have everybody, uh, everybody aboard. It is Hamilton today. Will Weber is uh, flying the plane. Up in the clouds is Will Erskine. And uh, obviously Diana and Dave in the newsroom, keeping us abreast of what is going on on the planet. And, you know, I'm talking about this because, you know, I host a news talk radio show, and this is what we're supposed to do. And frankly, I'm sick of talking about COVID. Uh, and now the election's about to come, and we're all going to get real sick of talking about that. So, uh, you know, we try to, to, to branch out a bit as much as we can after two years. And, and here we go again in need of perpetual rescue. We needed rescued from the pandemic. We need rescued from the freedom convoy. We need rescued from everything. What we don't, what we're not getting rescued from is inflation. Or housing prices rising. You know, those are the kitchen table things that we need rescued from. But apparently, we need rescued from Elon Musk. And again, we had Marvin Ryder on this uh, yesterday talking about, you know, the business side of all of this. And, you know, why was Elon Musk? It's not really a vertical company with uh, electric vehicles and rockets. It's kind of a different uh, thing. So why, why would you venture into that from a business perspective? Uh, so obviously it's become a pet uh, project for Elon Musk, but man, why does everybody care? Why are we ta- like on like nobody ever gave a damn about Twitter uh, prior to Donald Trump jumping on board, and then he jumped off board or was banned from it. Sorry, and uh, he says he's not coming back to the new Elon Musk. You know who loves all the people talking about this? Guys like Donald Trump and Elon Musk, who you probably wouldn't be talking about. Unless they're fly, flying rockets up or uh, another, uh, you know, progression in electric vehicles. But man, if it's social media, take that guy out of the knees. Take him out. Don't give. So what we're doing here is we're stopping somebody because we think they're going to say something. We're not saying, hey, you just said something and you're going to be penalized or charged for that or investigated. It's like, don't even give that person a microphone. Because if you give them a microphone, you're going to say something bad. Talking about the cart before the horse, and you wonder why there's freedom convoys. Like, my goodness, why are we so obsessed with 
a perpetual rescue. We gotta do this. We gotta save the world from this. We, now it's Elon Musk we have to save the world from? The man who literally brought us electric vehicles again? Like, you're kidding me. You know, I, do you talk about this with other, do you talk about this with other, uh, like other geniuses in the past? I guess we do, because most geniuses we thought were nuts. And most people thought they were nuts. Until, oh yeah, that EV, that's a good idea. Rocket. Hmm, that's interesting. Then it's a whole different story. Uh, interesting por- uh, report from uh, Kyle Benning of Global News on all of this. Listen. Elon Musk is paying a premium to secure the sale, offering $54.20 U.S. per share. The stock has gained value since Musk first announced plans to purchase Twitter earlier this month. Brett Chang co-hosts the Peak Daily podcast, which discusses Canadian and global business and tech news. He says Twitter has struggled on the market compared to Facebook and TikTok. And so I think shareholders will likely accept Elon's deal and think that, you know, his record speaks for itself. He's been successful with Tesla and SpaceX, and they're hoping he can do the same for Twitter. Musk has openly spoke about concerns around censorship on the platform. Twitter removed former President Donald Trump's account following the Capitol insurrection after the last U.S. election. Kyle Benning, Global News. And you know what I found fascinating with all this? When this all came up, oh, this is just a joke. Oh, this is just a joke. And then I'm watching commentators today. Well, you know, it was obvious he was going to do this. Uh, <laughs> it's hilarious. And then it's, well, are they going to take the off? Are they going to take the off? Are you kidding me? Again, if you do the business, uh, uh, if you take a look at, at, at Twitter's business affairs and the fact that Elon Musk is offering them a premium for this, yeah, I think they're going to take it. They're going to take it and run as fast as they can. And Elon Musk will do one or two things with it. It'll take off and be something that none of us who are now worried about this can even imagine, or he'll drive it into the ground. Or it'll be, you know, regulated to death, what have you. I mean, if it comes, you know, if there's a fly in the house, you go for the swatter. But to refuse to open any windows because you're worried there one might come in? Come on. That's why we have screens. And at the end of the day, I find this fascinating that we are so obsessed with this perpetual rescue. And now we have to be rescued from Elon Musk. Why? Because he's just bought a platform and who knows what he's going to do with it. All right. Well, why don't we wait to see what he's going to do with it before we scream and yell? Like, honestly, I, 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 I am just, I am, I, I can't believe why people are obsessed that Elon Musk is taking over. I can see why they'd be fascinating or fascinated because what's he going to do with it? How's he going to turn this around? Because, again, it was dying prior to the Donald Trump era. So what's he going to do with it? I don't know. So I'm pretty fascinated with that, as Marvin Ryder and I were discussing yesterday, Mac Bizprof. You know, who knows what he's going to pull out of his hat. But, you know. He is a bit of a genius, so if he can do if there's anyone out there that could do this, it's him. And I can see why we're fascinated, because we all like watching geniuses, but why we're 
you know, slapping down something before it's even happened. I don't know. Is that what we've become? You may have seen, and, and you see lots of these Red Bull-sponsored uh, wacky stunts and such of, of various degrees. This time, uh, this was incredible. A, a couple of stunt planes uh, with a pilot in each, and uh, basically uh, jumping out. Each one jumps out of their plane and tries to uh, swoop down and uh, fly into the other guy's plane. And boy, it looks good on paper, but in the air, it's uh, it was a different story. Uh, one of the planes seemed to do exactly what it was supposed to do, and uh, upon the pilots exiting, the other one did the opposite. So one guy got back into his plane or into the other guy's plane, uh, but the other pilot had to uh, had to obviously just keep going, get away from the planes, and pull a parachute, and eventually uh, have a very rough glide to safety. Now there's all kinds of ramifications about, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm just shaking my head because, you know, obviously I'm a father. Uh, and this seeing this guy, uh, the pilot on the uh, tarmac hugging his kids as if, you know, uh, he had just survived a plane crash, which he did, but he also caused. It just makes people sh- shake their head. And the FAA is now investigating. Let's bring in Keith Mackey, Mackey International. He's an aviation expert. And with us now, Keith, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. And the same to you. Everything's fine. So, Keith, what were your thoughts? Before we get to the legalities of this, what were your thoughts? I mean, obviously, people are doing these stunts now. It's a big deal. What were your thoughts when you saw this aviation stunt? Well, what did it really accomplish? Even if they'd done it successfully, what does it prove? They went to the FAA, they asked permission to do it, and they were denied permission. So they did it anyway. Uh, that isn't the way aviation works, and I think there's going to be some ramifications before we're through with this. Is it easier to beg forgiveness than ask for permission in this case? Well, I don't think so. I think the FAA has a duty to do. Uh, this was clearly, and they proved it, a careless and reckless operation. So there are major penalties involved for that type of operation. The pilot both of them could lose their pilot certificates. They could be revoked for doing this sort of thing. So it just depends how far the FIA is going to press it. But they're certainly within their rights to take action against what we call their airman certificates. Are you surprised they even went to the FAA and asked permission for this? Because it would, I can't see, I can't see it being, and I'm no expert here, but I can't see this as being anything any sort of official body would ever uh, approve. Well, you're exactly correct. Now, the week before, we had another very similar incident. We had a YouTuber who decided he was going to crash an airplane. Did we lose Keith? Oh, you have a great story, too. Can you get him back, or do I want to take a quick break here? Okay, uh, we're going to try to get Keith back. Uh, you know, this is uh, another issue in what we're talking about. And, and, you know, Keith asked, why would anybody do this? It's very easy why they do this. Uh, recognition and a payoff it's with some sort of, of advertisement and, and, and payoff in the end. Obviously, Red Bull all over the planes. Um, so their sponsorship right there. 
and, and we certainly know Red Bull and, and their energy drink has a has a reputation of doing this sort of thing and of of uh, of videoing, recording these sorts of stunts, whether the skydives or motorcycle uh, events or race cars or what have you, uh, doing some sort of extreme event and then obviously getting hits on a website. But it'll be fascinating to ask Keith if you know obviously the FAA looking at these two pilots and and what they did after asking permission and being denied permission to to pull this stunt in the first place uh, whether they will lose their license their 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 pilots licenses and but what about Red Bull what sort of uh you know uh well we just uh, they wanted some money for the plane so we uh yeah 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 we'll pay you some money you paint our name on the plane and and all will be good. We didn't know they were going to go up and try to, you know, jump out of a plane and into the other one. We didn't know that was going to happen. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it's companies like Red Bull that's, that, that sponsor these events. And, and, you know, they're the one. It's the reason it's happening. I mean, if there isn't a big paycheck at the end, how many people are just going to do this for fun? I know there are some that do. But again, it's usually for some sort of payout, whether that's hit to a video channel, which obviously translates into... Uh, into advertising revenue or exposure of some sort. So uh, some, somehow, whether it's directly or indirectly, there's a monetary payout for risking your life in doing this. Otherwise, you would be really stupid uh, to do anything like this. But, you know, what about you know, the two pilots, whatever, and however wacky they are, you know, trying to make a living or whatever they wanted, whatever it is that they're trying to do, that's one thing. But when you get a company like Red Bull that comes on and just, yeah, you know, we'll give you the uh, the amount of money, the whatever that it takes and what's ever needed to, uh, to sponsor this event, all you have to do is put our name on the planes. you got to wonder, like, do they hold right. any responsibility to any of this? We've got Keith, back, uh, Keith Mackey back, Mackey International. Uh, good to have you back, Keith. I, one of the questions I was going to ask we were just talking about is, what about Red Bull? I mean, these pilots losing their license through the FAA, that's one thing. Um, but does the company whose name's on the side of these, do they have any responsibility? Well, I would think so. They sponsor this. And that's part of their uh, uh, public relations campaign to promote their product. So uh, Red Bull is famous in aviation. They have a tremendous aircraft collection with a number of beautiful airplanes and helicopters, for that matter. And they have for a number of years. So in my opinion, they have quite a reputation to uphold in a positive manner. And I I really don't understand the uh, other than trying to get some sort of what I would call negative publicity, what the purpose of this really was. Say you could transfer from one airplane to another. Uh, what does that prove? Uh, you could do the same thing with vehicles, I suppose, go from one car to another, but it really doesn't solve any problems or make the world any better. Hmm. What do you think the outcome is going to be of this, Keith? Well, I think the FAA has to take some action. There's too much publicity regarding this. And I think they're forced to take some sort of a, a punitive action, probably against both pilots who participated, plus a, against the company. So we'll, we'll see what happens. It's not going to be a, uh, a pretty outcome, I don't think. Keith Mackey with us, Mackey International Aviation Expert, talking about the uh, Red Bull-sponsored mid-air plane swap, uh, the stunt yesterday that went awry in uh, one of the planes uh, plummeting in the, into the ground while the pilot parachutes to safety. Uh, Keith, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You're very welcome. You too. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. uh, We were talking about uh, Elon Musk and obviously taking over Twitter. And, um, you know, I I think this is going to be fascinating to watch from a business perspective and to see what he does with it. Because let's be honest, he reintroduced electric vehicles. uh, He's flying to space. It's, you know, he's a genius. Uh, But now people are really upset. Uh, that he has purchased Twitter, which I'm, 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 I must admit, I am surprised that people are this obsessed with him taking over uh, Twitter, especially considering it was dying uh, up until Donald Trump started using it by the hour, and then when he was gone, it, you know. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised because I could see people looking at this with curiosity, but it's almost like they're looking at it with vengeance. Let's bring in Dr. Mel- uh, Matthew Philp, assistant professor with the Department of Marketing and Management, uh, uh, Toronto Metropolitan University, the new Toronto Metropolitan University, I might add. Uh, and he is with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks. Are you surprised, Matthew, that we are this obsessed with this, with this takeover? Uh, not really. You could you could say we're obsessed about a lot of things. <laughs> so it's just one of those other things that, that we're obsessed about right now. <laughs> it's just another thing. No, okay. Are we perhaps too obsessed about these sorts of things? W- what do you think the attraction is here? Uh, it's a good question. I think it's just a lot of uh, uh, speculation. So everyone wants to give their opinion of what's going to change, what's not going to change. Uh, is this good? Is this bad? Uh, and I think like even like Elon Musk kind of summed it up in a, like a recent tweet. I don't know how recent it was actually. It might've been like March. He just said, I support the current thing was his tweet. And it's uh, it's just a, it's just a movement of people just being like, yes, no, angry, not angry. It's, it's, this is what Twitter thrives on. So it's actually likely a good thing. Well, you know what? You bring up a valid point here. It's not the message. It's the median. Uh, is he just poking a bear that that's what that this is exactly what it's all about? Potentially, yeah. Like uh, it's what the media, social media space has been for the last, you know, I don't know, like say five, ten years, where it's no longer about the tech involved in it. It's about kind of how it shapes the world and influences people in these different ways. So it's it's just a a big kind of question mark, I think. A lot of people you see and see a lot of things in the news lately of this is what's going to change, uh, this is how it's going to impact the world. But but on the surface or in reality, no one really knows what's well. What's that's the point. Gonna come. That's yeah. That's the point I'm making, Matthew. Um, everybody is so concerned what it will be before it even becomes what it will be, and um, y- you know, I mean, this is just uh, this is just creating excitement and euphoria around this whole deal. Uh, and and the more we chatter about it, the more you know. Obviously, the more interest and and the more profitable. I'm sure. I'm sure they'll. they'll hope it it becomes but how can you start to criticize something or regulate something before we know what the new twitter is uh i think that's it's just part of the trend of doing this for everything it's people have a comment or an opinion before they even realize the facts i guess of the situation or fully understand the issue uh so yeah it's 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 very a lot of times things get politicized and a lot of times it's just, oh, you hear quickly that it's bad or you hear quickly it's good. And then you just you pick a side and, and go with it. So it's it's a weird uh, phenomenon, I think, from a consumer standpoint that uh, granted, it's not everyone. I think it's mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a small group of people that just love having their opinions heard. 
uh, and I'm uh, part of the problem right now as I'm interviewing with you yeah, uh, yeah. about this. <laughs> so, but I think my stance is fairly neutral in the sense of no one knows, and uh, it's really hard to make a statement uh, in, in for or against at this moment. And let's be honest, Matthew, awareness is always a good thing. Uh, that being said, uh, you know, when Elon Musk, before Twitter, when Elon Musk was reinventing the electric vehicle and then started dabbling uh, in space exploration and such, uh, he was a genius. And I guess for all intents and purposes, still is a genius. Why do we view him differently now? It seems at one time, we and, and everybody, you know, you can point back in history to many people who were considered genius and they were a little off or a little, you know, I mean, they're not like <laughs> the rest of us, obviously. That's why they're a genius. Um, but certainly didn't maybe have the profitability of today's genius. Now that uh, these people who have really influenced society in some way or because, you know, simply by being a genius, now because we attach a dollar figure to them, are we more critical of them? At one time, we praised this guy. Now we're concerned about a platform that he's bought, that what he might do with it. Yeah, like uh, in regards to his behavior, I guess on Twitter is where he's commonly been posting is he's kind of had this, this role as a, as a troll, (laughs) Um, you know, just kind of always poking fun and that's, it's okay. I don't think he's, he's done anything super negative in in that sense, but it's, it's, there's always this sense of, of trolling underneath his, his posting behavior. So maybe now all of a sudden you have like this idea of a, a social media troll taking over the company themselves so what is it going to become and it's it is still again a big question mark is a troll a convenient thing of 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 calling someone who's pushing any envelope this time it's twitter so Um, if you're pushing if you're antagonizing potentially if you're pushing that if you're pushing people on social media you're a troll and really what he's doing is he's pushing the boundaries which probably makes him a genius potentially yeah i I guess you you can't potentially you know, he is these, a genius <laughs> you can't come up with these uh these companies and and make that yeah, much money yeah. take these risks if you're yes. not a little bit uh a little bit crazy i'm assuming like he he's definitely pushed the envelope into many industries uh inventing some industries himself so you know there's clearly something going on in his head that he sees as this is a, a valuable thing for him whether it be value in terms of money or value in terms of other you know status in some other way uh you know, I, I wouldn't doubt him. I believe he knows what he's doing. Uh, where do you think this is going? Where do you think he's going to end up with Twitter? Uh, honestly, right now, I'll go back to what I was saying before, is, is we don't know. I, I, yeah. I largely think nothing really will change on the surface, at least for a long time. So, you know, there might be small tweaks that he'll do. And uh, Do you think there's a chance, Matthew, that all of a sudden he'll pull something out of his hat and you'll think, oh, my goodness, I can't believe he just did that with Twitter. That's brilliant. Uh, potentially, I wouldn't. I, I, yeah. I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't hold my breath because um, I, I don't think uh, it's, a, it's fairly risky to kind of take something that. Sure, he might. He might argue that it's it, this system is broken, so he wants to take it and fix it. But I don't really think Twitter is that broken in the sense that it's a big company. It, it's very influential around the world, so it would be a silly move to take it and totally flip it on its head. Uh, I think he's probably going to take it and, and make maybe a few minor tweaks, and but I don't think anything's going to be that extreme. At least, Dr. Ma- <laughs> At least for now. Dr. Matthew Philp with us, Assistant Professor for the Department of Marketing and Management, uh, Toronto Metropolitan University. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Hey, no problem. You too. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton.
Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Reed, uh, Reed Duffy and, of course, from the Hamilton Bulldogs play-by-play announcer and uh, head of communications for uh, for the whole shebang and a very, very successful uh, Monday night game last night. Reed, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, Scott, always great to be with you. And, whoo, that one uh, got a little spicy last night. So uh, give us a little bit of an update because uh, obviously a little closer than what the score represented. I mean, give us give us your thoughts. Well, once again, like we saw in Game 1, Peterborough came out strong in the first period. They got a 2 nothing lead on the Bulldogs, kind of put Hamilton on the back foot a little bit at the start. And then once again, the offense starts rolling. Giordano Biondi takes a turnover, scores a beauty to get us on the board. And then Logan Morrison at the side of the net doing what he's done all season, 100 points on the year. He's already got five goals in the playoffs. Uh, just deadly from the side of the goal there on the power play. And from that point on, the Bulldogs get rolling, and once that offense gets rolling with Marco Costantini and that defense in the back, it's a hard team to stop. Another five-goal performance, another 5-2 win, 2-0 in the series. So, uh, you know, obviously uh, they're doing well. We talked about this before. They're the team to beat, and that's where the pressure lies. Uh, how, how do they, how do they go into Peterborough? How do they make sure they don't, they don't suffer from overconfidence here and, and beat themselves? I think it's just getting back to more of the same, and they've got to be disciplined, obviously. We saw a ton of penalties last night, including a lot of misconducts and getting players out of the game uh, from the officials as well as things were getting a little bit too heated. So the Bulldogs have to keep their heads about them, keep the discipline. You don't want any injuries or suspensions, especially in round one as you're moving forward. And with a 2 nothing lead, it's continue to play your game. What you're doing is working. You've got to keep Peterborough on the back foot You've got to keep them chasing the game because now, Scott, it's three games in four days and back-to-back in Peterborough. If the Bulldogs can force the Peets to continue to overuse their top six, they can wear them right down. And with the Bulldogs' depth that we've talked about before, when Peterborough has to shorten the bench, if the Bulldogs are forcing them to chase the game and they can use four lines and three defense pairs, that's a massive advantage in a three and four, and especially in a back-to-back. You can wear the Peets right down. And how concerned are they that going into the Pete's Barn? Because we know the history there. Well, I, I think concern is, is an interesting phrase there as well, because I, I think the concern is that Peter Bro gets some momentum out of being in that historic building. And, of course, the, the squires are the squared corners, right? You, you dump the puck in, and normally you're expecting a ring around, and it can fire right back out in front of your net. Peter Bro knows how to maximize bounces in that building. So, obviously, the Bulldogs are going to be uh, on their toes going into Peterborough. They know that it's going to be hard physical hockey there. They've seen it before this season, and uh, I, I think definitely they, they will want to get game three and get Peterborough firmly against the wall headed towards Thursday. Game three could be a big deal in this series. If you can take that kind of believability away, it makes a big difference going forward. All right, give us the details for game three, when's, where's, ifs, what's, all that stuff. Game three takes place tomorrow night, Wednesday night, Peterborough Memorial Center. And then uh, same thing, Thursday night, Peterborough Memorial Center, uh, 7 o'clock, both starts. Uh, the Bulldogs take it to the road for the first time in the playoffs. If a game five is necessary, it would be back here Saturday, April the 30th 
And that would be a wild one, Scott, because that's right in the middle of the Ontario Hockey League draft as well. So a whole lot of action coming up over this next week. And if the Bulldogs win in four games, if they're able to take games three and four in Peterborough, there's a chance if the other series, say Barry and Mississauga, go six or seven, the Bulldogs could have the better part of a week off before the second round begins. So it could be big to end this as quick as possible. Reed Duffy with his play-by-play man for your Hamilton Bulldogs in the midst of a playoff hunt and uh, off to Peterborough for for Game 3. Good luck. Congratulations, Reed. Keep going. We talk about this every election, and it's been fascinating, uh, as I said, through the global pandemic to have uh, uh, the various researchers on and talk about where our heads are at during a pandemic, especially when an election is coming. And Ipsos polling has uh, shown some uh, some changes and priorities for Ontario uh, for Ontarians since the last election and to talk more about all of this Daryl Bricker is with us CEO of Ipsos polling and on the line now Daryl thanks for the time I hope you're well oh I'm staying well I hope you are too yeah, thanks so much. And, you know, I find this fascinating because, and we've talked about this, even with, with past elections over the years and such, how, you know, sometimes what parties list as the top five issues are, are quite a bit different from the kitchen table issues that people are talking about, whether it's in the country, the province, the municipality, or what have you. Uh, but the, the new Epsos poll shows uh, at the uh, top of the list concerns, and these are concerns and priorities that people have uh, in this election. Uh, obviously, health care is at number one number two the recovery from COVID-19 uh, number three lower taxes uh, number four the high cost of gas and uh, and such groceries inflation I guess uh, number five housing affordability six jobs in the economy and then climate change at seven and even crime and public safety uh, at 15 which you know we just heard about the liberal uh, handgun ban last week are you surprised how this has changed in a post-pandemic world yeah, it really has changed a lot. And I think that's one of the things that uh, um, politicians are going to have to wake up to. So last year when we were coming out of the pandemic, just before the uh, the federal election, people were actually reasonably optimistic uh, about what the future was going to be. They thought that, you know, science and our, our, our good behavior had uh, had put COVID behind us and that we were going to be moving back into something in which we could maybe build back better or maybe even take advantage of some of the things that we learned during the pandemic. But uh, this year, a year later, we're not feeling that way at all. Right now, we're feeling the economic carnage, experiencing the economic carnage of the pandemic, and that's what people are really focused on. Yes, they have healthcare as number one, perennial when we go out and we ask people, What's the most important issue? Uh, managing the COVID issue, managing the health issues related to COVID, of course, that's up there. But right after that, it's everything related to the economic consequences of what we've just been through. Are you surprised how much housing has been in the news of late? Like this is shot from maybe, I don't know, you could tell us, but maybe a, something that would normally be in the 5 to 10 area of, of a top 10 list. And now it's, it's zoomed right to the top. Yeah, and actually it would be even further down than that. And when people were talking about housing two years ago, normally what they'd be suggesting, it would be people who would be focused on, you know, uh, how more housing for the homeless or dealing with low income, uh, uh, access to low income rentals and that kind of thing. That's not what we're seeing in this polling. What we're seeing today is that aspirational housing for the middle class 
that's where people are really feeling the pinch. And everybody who's uh, hearing us today in, in Hamilton knows exactly what we're talking about. It's not about dealing with, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, the traditional types of housing issues. It's really that aspirational middle-class housing, you know, that, that plot of land by your, on your own where you can park your car out front and you've got a backyard that you can have a barbecue in where you can raise your family. That's what people are feeling is now denied to them, and that's a big problem. It's fascinating because we always hear the phrases about the middle class during election time, you know, the middle class and those willing to join it. But many in the middle class, uh, many of us are saying, hey, you know, it, it seems that, you know, although you talk about us the most, we're the ones that are sort of neglected the least or sorry, neglected the most rather and get the least. Uh, that being said, um, it certainly seems like this is the middle class speaking up, isn't it? It's it was it's that unknown vocal uh, or, or, or rather silent majority that seems to be speaking up and the social issues have fallen to the wayside. Yeah, it really is exactly what we're seeing. So you mentioned, you know, climate change uh, really fallen down in terms of the list of priorities in Ontario right now. It's not that people don't care about it. It's just that they don't feel the same urgency around that issue as they do around the issues that we're talking about right at this moment. And again, can the attention or money be spent uh, better elsewhere at this point? I mean, uh, you know, I, I don't think Canadians are arguing over climate change. It's, it's how to address climate change. And, and obviously that's how it's fallen down. Yeah, whenever uh, we go out and we do surveys on climate change, there's, there's, you know, the numbers are always, always kind of the same. So the first thing is, do people think it's important? Absolutely, they think it's important. Do they think that something needs to be done about it? Absolutely, they think that something needs to be done about it. What are they prepared to do about it? next to nothing do they think that uh um uh other people are going to change this particularly government policies and that and uh, you know businesses uh, uh changing their practices yeah that's probably the way to go how long do we have to do this uh, you know it's it's not urgent it's not something that i'm dealing with this second all the other issues that we're talking about on the economic front people are confronting in as we're speaking today yeah and it's interesting, too, that that many of us say, well, you know, we've got to address climate change. But then as soon as those taxes kick in and the gas prices go through the roof, then it's a different story. That, exactly correct. So that, where we get into is the, the consequences of saying that you want to do something about climate change. And when, and when we start pressing on people and saying that their expenses are going to need to go up in order to deal with this, that's when we start to get pushback. And that's what we're, in fact, we're seeing right now. And that's why, for example, provincial governments are now looking at reducing uh, the sales tax on gas. Why? Well, because people are really worried about the cost of fuel. And remember who decides elections in this province. And it's people living in the suburbs who commute to work. And those are the people who are paying the burden of both the carbon tax, but also the increased uh, cost of, uh, of, um, of, of oil and gas products. Now, granted, the federal government's supposed to be refunding money and all the rest of it, but that takes a while. So people are going now, as they're going back to work, they're going for the first time in quite a long time and filling up their cars. And they're saying, oh my God, I don't remember uh, you know, being this much. And it's a real shock. Are politicians aware that there is a social shift? You can't sell the same stuff you did before the pandemic post? It seems that they're starting to wake up to the idea. So, for example, we saw the premier uh, get rid of the, uh, the, um, the cost of, uh, of uh, renewing your, your license plate in Ontario. I mean, that's right. specifically what we're talking about here. Tax relief for uh, gasoline, other things that are being proposed by uh, um, you know, all the parties, and I expect if they haven't done it yet, we'll soon be seeing it, um, uh, things to ease the cost of living and also op- open access up to uh, to more homes. 
uh, and so people can, people can buy them if they want to buy them. So you're, you're going to start seeing some of this rollout in the election campaign. But it is, a, I think, a, for all the politicians in the province, a fairly rude awakening. It's a very different agenda than the last election campaign. Daryl Bricker with us, CEO of Ipsos Polling. How much our attitudes have changed going into this provincial election from the last. Daryl with us, uh, as always. Thank you so much, Daryl. Be well. You too. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Ottawa preparing uh, for another protest come Friday. Are we are we ready to say that? I'm not sure, uh, but it certainly is on the radar as the Emergencies Act uh, inquiry is getting underway. Randall Denley is with us, author and columnist with the Ottawa Citizen and the National Post, and is with us now. Randall, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, Scott. Thanks. So your thoughts about this this inquiry, will we learn uh, if it should have been called, meaning the will we learn if the Emergency Act should have been called? Uh, because like after two weeks of doing nothing, uh, of course they have to do something, and many will say, well, by that time it was out of hand. But what's the objective here? What are they trying to figure out? I don't think they're trying to figure out anything, to be honest. The Emergencies Act compels them to have an inquiry, and, you know, the general consensus seems to be that the, the point of the requirement was to examine the government's conduct and make sure the imposition of the act was required. Instead, it seems like the marching orders for the commissioner are to look at what everybody else did. So what did those demonstrators do? How bad were they really? Were they really trying to overthrow the government? What about the police? Did they do a good job? Let's look at everybody except the government. I mean, really, the point is to reach a determination on whether uh, imposing that act was uh, an appropriate thing to do or not, which really, you know, I think is a matter of opinion in many respects. It seemed like a bit of uh, overreach to me at the time, but mm-hmm. subsequently people did get cleared out of the downtown, although I think that could have happened at any time had the police acted effectively. And again, I think something that we're really overlooking here, Randall, is that for the first two weeks, nobody did anything. The, the Prime Minister didn't even acknowledge them. And, and when he did, he was insulting them. And then it was sort of uh, down to the, uh, the, the mayor. And he was, you know, just stop, you're blowing your horns. And like just useless uh, leadership, I would say. And then obviously falling down to, to the police chief. So after three weeks or two weeks of, of nothing happening and this getting completely out of hand, I can certainly understand why people would say, uh, gee, maybe we should do something more. Um, but is the question about doing something more after two weeks or what they should have done at the beginning of all of this? What they should have done at the beginning of it all was not to allow people to set up camp right in yeah. Parliament Hill and, and occupy the entire downtown. And it was even uh, worse than that. The, the city provided them with a base camp at a baseball stadium they own. It's like, we're doing everything that we can to help you destroy our downtown and take it over. It was terrible police work. That's why the then chief is now the former chief. And you're right, Trudeau did nothing. Uh, nothing except aggravate them and egg them on and make the situation worse. It wasn't his problem. Well, it's a police matter. It's not my problem. But it is his problem because that's, it is his problem. I, to say. I think that would have gone a long way. Yeah, it is his problem because they came there to talk to him. They made that very clear. Yes, well, they aren't the kind of people that he talks to, although, no. as we know, he had spoken to other demonstrators. So it depends what your cause is, but it wasn't a cause he was going to relate to, so he wasn't going to talk to them. 
And that just made things worse. You know, I mean, they were a very determined group of people. Okay, he won't talk to us. We'll just sit here until he does. You know, and, and finally, he ended up using a hammer on something that could have been handled by him or others much more skillfully at the outset. Obviously, there's enough blame to go around, and the police had issues. Uh, the police chief had issues with trying to get uh, control over this. But it seemed for the first two weeks, nobody was really willing to do anything except let they, they just, I guess, assumed it was going to burn itself out for the first two weeks. Yeah, and strangely, the Ottawa police determined in their wisdom that even though the trucking people had said, as they streamed in from across the country, we're coming to stay. No, it's not just a weekend thing. We're coming to make our point, and we're going to stay until our point is made. Nah, they're just going to stay for the weekend, you know? We'll have and by the, we'll have them set up camp in front of Parliament Hill. Get out the, and, uh, the saunas and the bounce of councils, folks. Welcome to Ottawa. Hmm. You know, who could, who could have seen it coming? It was really a mystifying thing to people in Ottawa. It's like, you know, you see the... Someone who's not on your side outside the gates, you throw open the gates and say, come on in. It just didn't It didn't make sense. And then the chief didn't know what to do next. And it was hard to get them out. They weren't able to yeah. work effectively with other police services for weeks, although I'm not sure they necessarily needed them. You know, it, you know, it folded up pretty fast once the police started to act like police and just keep pushing back and arresting, pushing back and arresting. That's what should have been done after the weekend. And this all started as the trucking vaccine mandate. And by this time, 90% of the truckers are vaccinated and 10% aren't. And it's not even a concern because they'll just change the routes around. So here we are creating this monster when we've already got the vast, vast majority of not only this industry, but Canadians vaccinated. It just seemed it it was just a big provocation. It, it was a provocation, and to be fair, it's a provocation that started in the U.S. are the ones who had the rule and, and mm-hmm. Canada, as we so typically do, followed along behind. But what we should have been doing is saying to the Americans, this doesn't make any sense. We haven't yeah. had this rule. You know, we're two years into it. Why do we have it now? Ninety percent of truckers, as you say, are vaccinated, so let's just not worry about it. Some trucks going back and forth across the border isn't going to be a big problem because you know both countries had lots of COVID, so it's not like either country was keeping something out hmm. it was an american rule that didn't make sense we followed along with it and then because it was a rule that the federal government decided to impose well it must be imposed vigorously because it's one of our rules i mean you know even even now they're slowly dismantling pandemic era rules they just They've been stuck in the past, really, since this began. They're always reacting to something that happened six months ago. Randall Denley with us, author and columnist for the Ottawa Citizen and the National Post, talking about the Emergencies Act inquiry, which is now underway. Randall, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Yep. Thanks so much. Good to talk to you. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. I mean, the things you see here and the near misses, it's really unsafe. And people with kids and, and, and grandmothers and people on canes. and I mean, I really want it looked at. I, I, I want it slowed down. And not and this one and the other one. The intersection has to be looked at. It's it's there's just too much activity. And the fact that there's if that red light camera wasn't there, 
there'd be so much more trouble. But that scares a lot of people because it's it's a big fine of about three hundred fifty dollars. Uh, citizen Daniel McCanny talking about uh, the accidents and the intersection and in, in one of uh, the city's worst, to be honest, uh, King Street and Dundurn, uh, the site of uh, several accidents over the years, including uh, one yesterday involving a transport truck. And once again, many people are questioning the safety of this intersection of this road. Uh, yesterday's incident, seeing a 31 year old male driver sent to the trauma center, serious injuries, 12 year old passenger transported to uh, Max Children's Hospital uh, with injuries uh, less than a month ago, 14-year-old struck uh, by a vehicle at Maine and Dundurn. So, again, a very, very busy block. What can we do to make it safer? Let's bring in Maureen Wilson, Councillor, Ward 1, City of Hamilton, and had a piece in The Spectator on all of this and is with us now. Maureen, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thank you for having me. We obviously know, Maureen, uh, anyone who knows these, uh, both these intersections, it, it, you know, heavy, heavy traffic, a lot of lanes, anything we can do, what can we do? We know there's red light cameras there. They were meant to, to hopefully, uh, you know, slow this down. What are your thoughts? Well, I think the, the gentleman that you had uh, beginning this segment, uh, the resident is absolutely correct. Uh, this these two intersections, Maine and Dundurn, and King and Dundurn have uh, been hiding in plain sight. I wouldn't even say they've been hiding. Um, every year, the city produces a collision report, reports uh, to council, and uh, the five-year average between 2015 and 2019, those two intersections have been in the top ten repeatedly. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is. It's not news. It shouldn't be news. Um, and it represents a, a danger uh, that is not acceptable. The resident was talking about red light cameras and how uh, he felt it would be a lot worse without this. Do we know have any stats on if these have helped uh, the situations at those intersections? I don't have stats on that, but I, I think the collision uh, data is the most important. So King and Maine... Uh, King and Dundurn, uh, number two, for frequency of pedestrian fatalities. Um, but if you include vehicular, cycling, and pedestrian fatalities and injuries, uh, Maine and Dundurn is number two, and um, King and uh, uh, Dundurn are not too far behind. So it's for this reason that um, I ask council, and with their support, there is a road safety review uh, that is being initiated and uh, the consultant will have access to video analytics. Video analytics are important and they're a new tool in that they were they will measure uh, for the first time near misses for pedestrians and also vehicular traffic. And the scope of that work is going to be broad because it has to be. Um, the uh, the entire uh, roadway will be under review. The impact of adjacent properties will be included in the review. Visual distractions will be included in the review. And the MTO, the Ministry of Transportation, on and off ramps will be included in the review. Um, boy, that sounds like no easy fix, Maureen, especially if we have to redesign intersections uh, to, in, in, in that area, which is very uh, condensed and very, very... Uh, uh, very dense, just a very busy area. Many will say uh, lots of lanes, 
uh, high speed, proximity to the 403, as I mentioned, busy place, uh, pedestrian traffic. There's the Dundurn Mall there and such. Um, mm-hmm. That's going to happen. How do you eliminate this with all of that? I know the study will do that. and You can't read into a crystal ball here, Maureen. But, you know, I mean, is there anything we can do with any of these? Uh, it just seems like it's prime a prime intersection because it has so many lanes. Uh, there's just so much going on there. Yeah, there is. So, but what's the alternative? Yeah. We can't do nothing. Um, The onus is on us. We are accountable as a council and as a community for this information. And we cannot have more of the same of yesterday uh, at the end of of March. Um, And to your point, uh, it has to be all inclusive. Uh, You've mentioned uh, the the five lanes, the ramps, uh, the, the, the busyness of it. Yeah. The difficulty of, of coming off those ramps even and yeah. trying to get into a different lane. Um, it's, 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 it's a hostile uh, experience and it's, uh, it's not a great way to enter a city and it's not a safe way in which to live. Um, do you think there's any sort of calming measures that can be done, or do you think this is going to be a major infrastructure project to like completely design, redesign some of these intersections? Yeah, well, the one thing you don't want is politicians like me instructing engineers what to do. Mm. Our job is to say um, to the engineers, this is a priority uh, as a public and as a democratically elected council, we're accountable for the, this information. And if we have to choose between immediacy and comprehensiveness, we're going to err on the side of being comprehensive. Because what you don't want to do in any kind of uh, response, uh, you don't want to shift the problem. You don't want to save the problem. You want to solve the problem. And we have to involve the community in this deliberation. And we have to know that it's going to be uh, worth our best efforts to do it. It's got to be comprehensive. Maureen Wilson with us, Councillor, Ward 1, City of Hamilton, talking about the ongoing issues with King and Dundurn, Maine and Dundurn. Very, very busy roads, lots going on, lots of pedestrians, lots of lanes, lots of traffic, and unfortunately, lots of accidents. How do we stop it? Maureen, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Good luck. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We remember, or maybe you don't back uh, two years ago, over two years ago. When did this start again? Uh, <laughs> the global pandemic. And we, I think it all started with the toilet paper. Remember the toilet paper shortage? And I'm not sure why, you know, um, that's what we went for. Uh, considering it was a respiratory ailment, uh, ailment and not the other end. But uh, again, everybody was saying, you know, just calm down and get what you need and we'll be fine and things will be replenished uh, uh, soon enough. And of course it was. But then we started seeing things like uh, uh, barges going sideways uh, in the canal, in the Panama Canal, I believe it was, or was it Suez? Anyway, uh, and, and things just progressively got worse over the course of this uh, global pandemic. Many are saying, well, that's the reason why we are what we are, but what was the state of Canada's supply chain before the pandemic? And is there anything we could have done or can be doing to at least uh, help us get through this and, and and try to be more prepared in the future? Let's bring in Ofer Barron, Distinguished Professor of Operations Management, Academic Director, Rotman School of uh, Management at the University of Toronto, and is with us now. Ofer, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, all is well here. Thanks for having me, Scott. 
We all know uh, that, you know, obviously the global pandemic has has thrown a stick into this wheel. And, uh, you know, we certainly are aware of what the problems are. Uh, I think most people understand that. However, many are blaming all of this on the global pandemic. What was Canada's supply chain uh, situation like prior to the pandemic? Was it durable enough even before this started? Um. It was durable, possibly not durable enough. Um, but as you said, overall, so far, we kind of uh, survived a few uh, tough waves and, and uh, several disruptions. But I think now we are at a situation where uh, every small additional disruption may throw us uh, over the edge. Are we doing enough as a country? Can we do more to to sustain ourselves through this? What can we do not to make this situation worse? Yeah, so I think that, that, that's an important part. And the, the main part that is probably something effective to be doing now with respect to supply chain and improving them is uh, improve the infrastructure that we have. Um, you know, even pre-pandemic, some of the roads, uh, some of the train lines uh, were not up to par. Uh, so this is certainly something that uh, can be improved. Today, we also understand the importance of having the uh, seaports and uh, airports operating well to support uh, supply chain activities. Obviously, seaports are significantly more important because there's much more um, commerce that is being uh, transformed overseas. But uh, to some extent, as in many other places, the interaction between two different uh, resources. So if you think about uh, seaport and the train, train and trucks, uh, and so on, those are the places where I think there is uh, the most potential benefit uh, in terms of improving our infrastructure. We've talked about this uh, at length, especially recently with the housing situation, that it seems in Canada, whether it's Ontario or, or across the country, nobody's been really anxious to build over the last 30 years. It seems that building's been a bad word, whether it's housing, whether it's uh, in transportation, infrastructure, roads, rail. Uh, you were talking about building more ports. I mean, I'm hearing even in Vancouver, they're having issues trying to get that done. And, and you know, that would just seem to build a port would be a natural economic um, something would be very obvious to us to do. Yeah, it's it's easier said than done. Those uh, projects are uh, very expensive, um, and also this is not something that you can do in a couple of months, right? Yeah. Those projects are expensive in terms of time as well. Uh, you know, I live in Toronto. There's a subway line that should have, uh, I know, probably should have been opened five years ago and we're hmm. still working on it. Obviously, COVID didn't help in this uh, context, but if you look even on public transportation and our support for public transportation in terms of the subway lines and the passenger trains, they are not where they should, uh, where they could be. No, we, we've talked at length about, I remember in the 70s, uh, people talking about, officials talking about high-speed lines between Toronto and Montreal and Windsor and such, and, and you know, obviously none of that uh, has even been thought of. So are we going to learn from this? Uh, we talk about it now, we talk a good game, but then as soon as things settle down, whether it's fixing the healthcare system or energy situation, we don't seem to get to it. Have we learned some lessons that we cannot turn our backs on through this? 
Uh, I I think so. So one one of the things that uh, help people learn is um, getting hit in the face, essentially, right? Mm. Yeah. So when we face when we face challenges, when we face catastrophic events like COVID and the implication of, uh, of it, we suddenly see that what we've done, quote unquote, normally beforehand is not really uh, sustainable for a long term. And especially if you want to see some economic growth now after the slowdown that we are all experiencing due to the pandemic. And one of the promising way to uh, support growth is by investing in in infrastructure and we know that we need it so i i certainly see something like this uh, going forward do you sense a building boom coming here over because I, I, I was saying earlier that that's what we need we need like a 10-year plan where let's just build what we need um, and build it yeah, smartly of course yeah. yeah no so exactly so what i like about the way you put it was really good it's it's a building plan right it's not. It's not. It's something that should be well thought of and, and mm-hmm. uh, being done. I think you know. I, as much as I, lo- I love the country, sometimes we take too long to plan things, and there are so many factors that are coming into the decision making process that uh, it sometimes make them um, ineffective. Uh, you know, you look at some of the infrastructure projects that have been. Uh, um, building uh, around the world. I, I look at China as probably the, the largest builder over the last um, decades, essentially, right? A much simpler decision process. Obviously, it has its cost. Uh, but certainly, I think there is time for the Canadian government, both the federal and provincial governments to kind of push things forward and start pushing uh, some better planning of infrastructure uh, one of the critical things that you think about infrastructure that we don't have w- uh, good support for and, um, is, for example, uh, charging stations for electric vehicles, right? Mm-hmm. Those yeah. are, again, things that we can think of and, you know, we know it should be there. We know it's coming. So Getting so back to the plan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Ofer Barron with us, Distinguished Professor, Operations Management, MMA Program at the Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto, Supply Chain Issues, and How We Build and Balance That with Urban Sprawl and Building Smartly. Ofer Barron, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Be well. Take care. Thank you, Scott. Bye-bye. Let's talk about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, give you a bit of an update there. Uh, We talked earlier this week, the U.S. actually visiting, U.S. officials visiting and meeting in person with President Zelensky, providing greater aid uh, for uh, Ukraine and its battle against Russia. Russia obviously not happy with this and threatening nuclear war. If it looks like we're going to lose... We might have to bring out the nukes. Is that the message? Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, with us now. Elliot, thank you for your time. I hope you're well. Hi, thank you, and same to you, Scott. So we've certainly seen, even though uh, Russia regrouped and, and retooled and came back after the eastern regions of, uh, of the country and such, that their progress has been quite slow. Uh, and, and obviously now more uh, artillery coming in from North America and such. Uh, is this the mantra of Russia, that if we keep having a hard time, we'll bring out the nukes? They certainly early on, and I think quite reckless, recklessly, have brandished the nuclear weapon threat uh, right from the outset, actually before the invasion itself. Um, uh, Mr. Putin was bragging about his latest weapons and 
and said that, you know, if anybody tried to get in our way, it would be a response unlike any in history and so forth. So uh, I think one thing that he's forgotten is that every time he talks about brandishing the nuclear threat, it really puts a bullseye on, on Russia. And of course, the same would go of any other country, China, for example, or North Korea. So the, the nuclear threat has been raised. This, the response from Mr. Kirby, the spokesperson for the Pentagon said, this is a weapon that can never be used. It's a war. You can never win a war with a nuclear weapon, so therefore you never should fight that war. But the fact that they repeatedly bring it out quickly and in a variety of ways, we have a new supersonic weapon that can evade all of your defenses and deliver nuclear weapons with merved multiple warheads. This has been going on as a constant theme right from the beginning, and I find it uh, perhaps among the most disturbing aspects of the Russian behavior. So if, you know, and, and I'll use the term cornered rat, and you're losing, and it doesn't look like there's much more in your arsenal, why would, would, wouldn't we, be, would we not be naive to think he wouldn't do this? Or that he knows if he pulls that trigger, the world's going to come down on him like no tomorrow. Yes, the, uh, the whole question is what would NATO do? The term tactical nuclear weapon is often being used now. If you read the subtexts, uh, I find that to be an oxymoron. A tactical nuclear, nuclear weapon is one that can potentially have a smaller explosive uh, yield and be confined to a particular battle region. And it could just be, you know, two or three times or up to 10 or 15 times the size of Hiroshima. Uh, the idea that you could take out a small city in one place and the other side would take out a city of equal size in your area and everybody would then just say, okay, we're done. I, I find this to be one of the most disastrous uh, aspects of the hmm. current nuclear confrontation. There's no doubt, Scott, in my mind that the nuclear temperature has gone up uh, since this invasion. The irresponsible behavior at uh, Chernobyl. This has now come on back under control, but they took over after shelling Chernobyl, and they uh, Zaporizhia, which is the, the 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 largest nuclear power plant in Europe, has also been shelled uh, at the outskirts. So I'm finding a lot of irresponsible behavior as well as uh, use of incendiary, careless language in this regard. U.S. officials uh, visiting with uh, uh, Ukraine President Zelensky earlier on this week, and, and one official had said that uh, Russia's already lost. Does this inflame, or is this reality? Uh, Russia does not perceive that it is lost. They are proceeding according to their own plan, uh, Plan B, uh, but it was one that they had in mind, I think, from the beginning. If we can't take the whole thing uh, at one bite, we will continue to Further fragment. Remember, Ukraine has been dismembered in 2014. Mm -hmm. the Crimea was gone and two parts of the Donbass region were taken by Russia and have been held. And there's been an ongoing conflict ever since. And now they're trying to expand into the Donbass to take the entire oblast, uh, regional administrative region, press southward. Uh, Mariupol, unfortunately, is in, from their view in the way. So they have to demolish that, then move on. I think the intention was to take uh, Crimea as well, uh, sorry, Odessa as well, but uh, Ukraine has foiled that by sinking the, the flagship of the Russian Navy, uh, the, the Moskva. So that fleet has had to move off from Odessa, but it's still, uh, I think, under threat. 
And now they're talking about linking it up with a slice of Moldova, uh, Transnistria, which they took in the early 1990s. There's about 1,500 Russian troops there, and now there's been some maybe false flag operations there. And that would that would really uh, create Ukraine as a, a rump state uh, if all that goes forward. Hmm. Are Russians, the citizenry there, still buying into all of this? It seems that they're on Putin's side, even more so now. It's very difficult to know um, the reality inside Russia because two things are happening. One is that there is almost complete control of all the official media, and much of Russia gets their TV and radio news from official media. So that's one thing that's going on. But we now live in a more interconnected world, so the word goes back. Uh, in a variety of ways. Uh, the uh, the first batch of Russian prisoners of war, the failed attempt to take Kiev, uh, the uh, Ukrainians gave cell phones to the captured Russian soldiers and say, call your, call your mother and tell her mm. where you are. So it's very, and the mothers of, the mothers, uh, the Babushkas in Russia are a potentially potent force. So I cannot answer that uh, question accurately. The Poles suggest indeed uh, that every time Mr. Putin gets in trouble, he attacks somebody. This is Bill Browder's uh, father of the Magnitsky Act's view. It's just a mechanical operation. Why did Putin do this now? He was in trouble at home. He uh, in the past has been in trouble at home. So what he does is he attacks, you know, Georgia or Chechnya, gets away with it. His popularity soars. His popularity has gone way, way up, uh, according to the polls. But Scott, what would you do if somebody rang you up and said, hi, I'm a pollster. Do you love your president? So yeah. it's very uh, difficult to know how reality-based those polls are. Elliot Tepper with us, professor of political science, Carleton University. Update on what is going on with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and uh, where it goes from here. Elliot, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. And thank you. Same to you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Scott Radley is with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator, and of course, coming up after uh, the 6 o'clock news. Scott, how are you? I hope you're doing well. I am doing great. How are you? I'm doing very well, and I'm thinking because you said the Raptors would lose, I think they're <laughs> going to go all the way and win four in a row. What do you think? So uh, two, we have to make two corrections from last night, Scott. One oh, them, wait a section. I put some salt on the floor. You're going to start to tap dance here? Yeah, yeah. No. One, so one of them, I was dead wrong about the Raptors, uh, but I was not anticipating that the 76ers were going to be as bad as they are either. But good for the Raptors, even shorthanded. They are making this a series. And you know what? The pressure now, uh, nobody expects the Raptors to win this year. Uh, mm-hmm. Not a championship, certainly. And Yet Philadelphia has a track record, especially their coach, a track record of coming up very small in the big games. Pressure all on Philadelphia now. So while I was shocked that this series is still going on based on the first two games in Philadelphia, now, uh, who knows? Now it looks like the Raptors are, you know, suddenly in a position where they could do something no NBA team has ever done before, and that's come back from 3 nothing down. I'm not saying it's going to happen. But I sure like their chances a whole lot more now than I did 24 hours ago. So, so if they can come back yeah. and win four in a row, which is something that no NBA NBA team has ever done, is can they still not go on to win the championship? Then, you know what? 
But I know I'm asking you questions that there is no answer to. No, but I mean, look. Just to set you up when you're wrong, Scott. No, no. And the thing with NBA teams, and we've seen it before. We saw it around here with the Raptors, with Kawhi Leonard. This is a league that really rewards teams that have a real huge superstar. Because that guy can play basically the whole game, and there's only five guys on the court. And they, they don't have that. So I, I don't. I really don't think that this year they're built for that. But look, they've already surprised us. They've already done better than a lot of people thought. They've already made the playoffs, which a lot of people predicted they wouldn't. They're they're fighting back with guys injured. Good for them. Good for them. Now, can I just say the other thing that we got to make a correction about? I think because you and sure. I last night, or the night before, but I think it was last night, we're talking about the um, inquiry into the. Um, the Emergencies Act, you see. Yes, yep. And I think we made a mistake. And I, I just want to clarify, just in case we did, because it appears, I was reading today, and I, I got this one wrong yesterday, apparently, there is going to be an independent justice sitting over this, which we had said yesterday was not, didn't sound like the case. So I still have my concerns about where no, this may or may yeah. not get us. But there yeah, is, I think it's not just a it's not just a parlamentary thing. There no, is someone independent yeah. who is judicial oversight. So I, I want to make that clear because if we got it wrong, I want to be fair. And, and but I, I, I still have my questions. I still want to see what the rules are going to be and who's allowed to speak and what's allowed to be brought out. But it's it's better than we were talking about yesterday. Um, you know, I find it fascinating too that people are saying, "Well, you know, what would you have done after this amount of time?" And it's and you know, if you sit around for two two weeks and you just throw insults around and you don't really address the problem, whether you're the prime minister, whether you're the mayor of Ottawa, or whether you're the police chief of Ottawa, and then after two weeks go, you know what, this is really flaming out of control, and we got to bring in the heavy artillery. I don't think anybody was going to question after they screwed it up for the first two weeks and let it get to the point that they that it did that yeah you know they needed a, you know a plan b per se but again if they had addressed this at the very beginning instead of letting it turn into the circus that it did um you know i think it'd be a, t- a completely different situation again the prime minister was out in the first two days of the russian invasion of ukraine and was all over the news and then eventually flew there you know that he did more in the first two days of that than he did through the whole two weeks first two weeks of the the, the convoy protest right in ottawa I, I, look, I, I, there's lots of things that you can look at in this one. I, I do agree that one of the things that um, the prime minister did not, I don't believe, did not help this. Because when no. you've got people who are coming with a grievance, and they weren't coming as a, a horde of plundering Nazis, they were coming as people who were upset about what was going on. And they and, wanted to see him. They and didn't they want to see the mayor. They didn't want to see the police chief. They wanted to see him. And he kept shoving it off onto everybody else. But it wasn't just that he shoved it off. It was not just shoving it off. That was a problem. But he also antagonized them. He intentionally antagonized yeah. them and started calling them names and making them sound like all of them sound like extremists. Look, somebody showed up with a, with a swastika. All right. No one denies that. We've seen the pictures of it. But saying that that somehow means that all of the people there represent that view, that's, that's a ludicrous argument. And yet that's kind of what was put out there. And it was taunting. And it was, it was, it was trying, rather than trying to resolve a problem, it was trying to score cheap political yeah. points on the back yep. of people. Many, the majority, I believe, who truly had concerns and didn't come there to 
become a white nationalist or to burn the place down. You know that that story about the that story about the um, the the person who went into the apartment building and tied the doors yeah. together and tried to burn the building. That's now been proven to have nothing to do with this. Yet all the politicians who talked endlessly about how this was indicative of the violence, nobody's apologized for all those comments. Rather than taunting somebody, rather than making comments and trying to belittle yeah. them, if you are a leader. You don't have to agree with them. You don't even have to compliment them. But I think you can certainly not put gasoline on the fire right away and then act completely and utterly shocked when the anger grows. If, the, if he had said, yeah. I'll sit down with you, I'll talk to you, a group, I'm not talking to everybody, I'm not coming out into the crowd, the Secret Service says that's not safe, but I'll talk to a collection of three or four or five of whoever you choose, and then... If it grows and the anger builds and everything, different story. But it was like, this is like when I was a kid and I would taunt my little sister or she would taunt Mm. me and then one of us would snap. And then you go, well, no surprise, I don't think. And this all happening while 90% of the truckers are vaccinated. So there's nine people in a room picking on the one person who won't do what they say. This whole thing was disgusting in my uh, view, but there you go. Uh, Scott Radley coming up next after the 6 o'clock news. You can also read them in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great show. Thank you, Scott. You too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Thanks to the two Wills and Diana and Dave in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer. This time it's Frank to have the last word. The Dalai Lama, when asked what surprised him most about humanity, answered man, because he sacrifices his health in order to make money. Then he sacrifices money to recuperate his wealth, his health. And then he is anxious about the future that, has not, that he has not enjoyed the present. The result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he is never going to die, and then he dies having never really lived. Would this be Elon Musk? Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.